0: BLOB
1: TALK RADIO Welcome to Science fiction Radio. On today's show we have photo illustrator and author Justin Benzel. Sit tight while he joins the show. Justin, you there?
0: Yeah, Owen, how's it going?
1: Doing pretty good. Welcome to the show, man. How are things with you today? Going pretty well. Staying busy. How are you? Doing pretty good. That's good stuff, man. So let's uh, welcome everybody to the show. Uh, You're a photo illustrator and an author. Can you tell us a little bit about this art form and exactly what it involves?
0: Um, Well, the way that I work specifically is I... Combine photo manipulations and short stories together, um, in sort of a narrative capacity. So I'm I'm trying to get the images and the text to work together to tell a story instead of strictly having the images supplement the text. If that makes any sense. So I'll I'll do Photoshop. Yeah, so I'll do like Photoshop-based manipulations that are related to the short stories, but not necessarily um, illustrating something that's already written.
1: Mm. So you now you work also with a lot of science fiction elements in your photo manipulations. What are exactly some of the types of things you work into the, into those uh, creations that you make?
0: So you're asking how science fiction plays into the series that I'm working on right now.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's basically, basically the entire thing. It's sort of um, <laughs> it's sort of using tropes off of classic science fiction. Um, like Twilight Zone, Day the Earth Stood Still sorts of aesthetics, but it, it's mixing them with classic detective stories as well. So, you know, think like Maltese Falcon or Double Indemnity, and um, sort of using it as not necessarily the, the entire thing the narrative hinges on, but something sort of um, that plays a part. So, for example, if, you know, if you broke the story down, it, it might kind of play out like a detective story, but... Um, it's introducing science fiction elements. You could imagine, you know, what if Humphrey Bogart had a laser gun, you know, or what if, um, you know, if that, if that makes any sense. Or um, So it, it's a lot of um, sort of mashing together classic film noir and classic science fiction into one thing and seeing how they sort of relate to one another.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, how did how did the project exactly come about? Did you just come one day and like say, hey, I need to create this? Or is there like uh, something that inspired you? Or um, it, It's honestly kind of funny how this particular
0: series sort of came about. Um, I've always sort of worked narratively. Um, and a couple of years ago, I was sort of feeling limited by it. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought I'd just have a, a bit of fun and and challenge myself to do some sort of, like, fake B-movie stills, so, you know, I, I, my intention with the first few images was just to get that effect of, like, if you see a, a still from a B-movie and that effect of being, like, uh, what the hell's going on? You know, you see, like, a brain floating in the middle of a room or a, a picture of, like, a an amphibious monster laying on a table with doctors surrounding it, and, like, the first question you ask yourself is, like, what the hell could possibly explain this situation? And I I wanted to elicit that same response from other people. Uh, So I did about five images that weren't necessarily supposed to be connected to each other other than just um, aesthetically and sort of obviously they were all um, referring to the same period in movies or television. But I fell into a trap in that, you know, I, I started asking myself, like, you know, if these images were from the same story, you know, what would that be? You know, and at that point, I had, like, an image of a spaceship. I had an an image of, like, an invisible person. I had an image of someone whose face had been, like, wiped clean by applying some sort of weird topical agent. And in so creating some sort of outrageous story that would make these images exist in the same universe, I sort of fell in love with the narrative. And I I decided at that point that the subsequent images would, would... narrative. In spite of my attempt to not do a project that was narrative-based, I've ended up actually doing the longest narrative project that I've done to date, you know, over two years into it at this point. So, um, yeah, I I guess I sort of set a trap for myself, and that's why why I'm at where I am.
1: Wow, that's amazing, man. It's amazing. There are these aliens in the book that I was looking at where exactly do they come from and how do they play? Like, are there also in the follow-up question, are there any villains in your stories or?
0: Um, absolutely. There's a response for both of those things. Um, the, the gist of the aliens is, is that they're sort of for, ver- for reasons that I, I want to hold back because I haven't released the story yet. And uh, so there, there's some degree of silly secrecy, I guess, you know, just that I want it to be a surprise when the book comes out. But for, for, a, for a specific reason, these aliens are sort of outcast um, from their planet mm-hmm. and they land on Earth um, attempting to hide from mm-hmm. their own kind. And so they strike a deal with this individual to create gadgetry for him in exchange for asylum. And so they sort of function as, um, they're basically as a plot device, like the, the means by which all of this technology can exist immediately. As opposed Mm -hmm. to a lot of science fiction stories where like you'll be confronted with a landscape that's been exposed to this technology for a long time and so it it dramatically alters the landscape you know you think like Blade Runner you know if you if you're if you're look if you're looking at Blade Runner as a science fiction landscape this is clearly a culture that's had this stuff for long enough that it's that it's changed you know how the architecture looks it changes how the people dress it changes um, the way they interact with each other, whereas this story is more that the landscape in general is recognizable, but this technology is introduced to it so rapidly that you're there while it's changing. Like you're you're seeing it change instead of like sort of seeing it as an afterthought. Um, and then you asked about the aliens, and then you asked about the villain. The villain comes about organically through um, sort of the fallout of of these this technology happening so quickly. Um, he's referencing the images that already exist, but he's one of the guys that works for the company when it's first formed. And um, he sort of kind of goes off the rails and becomes this sort of um, Al Capone type character. Um, but he, but a la the invisible man, he's stuck invisible. So his, his whole thing is he, he's, oh, he's always portrayed as with this sort of like Chrome Bug, bug mask. I can't explain it the other way than that. But there's an image that's up already of him. Um, but I, I don't. I, I hesitate to say much more without spoiling too much of the story.
1: Right. Understand, man. This, those uh, creations sound incredible. That this character, especially like the Invisible Man, I saw that, that was pretty neat. Now, the I mean, company. Yeah, I the, mean a
0: lot of. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that a lot. I designed, I designed this series sort of to be a treat for fans of sci-fi and detective, um, both novels and films from the time period. You'll see a lot of references to things throughout the story if you look closely enough. Um, almost everything that I've made is, is because I, I'm just totally in love with that period of culture and storytelling. And so you know, the Invisible Man reference is just one of many that exist in the story. I mean, like w- there's a, for example, there's a dog man character named Petey, and when I was designing the effect to do him, I was like directly looking at you know the classic Wolfman um, from the from the films from the film in the '50s, and you know when I designed Fish People, I'm looking at a creature from the Black Lagoon, and you know I, I think. Fans of the Twilight Zone specifically will see a lot of that aesthetic and also the the sort of parable structure to the narrative. Um, uh, it's just it, it's all over the place. But um, right. continue, I'm sorry I interrupted you. What was the question you were going to ask?
1: Oh, it's all good. That's kind of like Universal Monsters type stuff. Back like you said, like retro old school fifties and things like that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I I think you know this this for me this is like playing around with. My favorite stuff, you know, I I grew up with this stuff and um, I'm a total, you know, nerd about especially science fiction, horror and detective stuff from that period. So for me, it's just like a practice and what happens if I shove everything that I like into one pot, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and see what photo manipulation, what I can do with photo manipulation as related to that. And, you know, I'm I'm really inspired also by the processes of that period. I'm a big big stickler for uh, doing stuff practically as much as possible so I, I build on my own props um, I work a lot with miniatures um, I try to use honestly try to use Photoshop as little as possible so um, it, it retains that sort of honest and uh, quality that you that I feel like you will get when you watch classic you know movies and television um, and it also at some point, it becomes kind of campy. Like you know, sometimes it looks ridiculous because of the process. But because I'm emu- I'm trying to emulate that period. Um, I think that's part of the reason that it's successful, because I'm trying to mimic their process.
1: Totally, you know, I understand. Like kind of like uh, like 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 the robot. Like I was noticing, there's a lot of original items like robots and ray guns, gizmos and gadgets in your photos. Like what exactly goes into the creation of those things, and how do those come come about?
0: You know, it really depends on um, what it is, but you know, having the advent of, you know, after the Kickstarter, having some funds, things are a, a tiny bit different. But my process has stayed the same basically the entire time. That so, you know, I just sort of um, behave as if you know, I'll, maybe I'll go to a store and just and see if any if any weird object at like a at a thrift store or a, a pawn shop or something sort of like strikes me as. I don't know, it it might be something. For example, like, uh, one of the laser guns that I have was actually a soldering iron, you know, and I was just walking around and saw this thing, and something about it was like, this could be a laser gun, you know, if it was, you know, messed with a little bit. So a lot of times it's things like that, like finding a weird object, or um, I, I like to do model crashes, which sort of, which just means, like, basically I'll buy multiple model kits. And then I'll take pieces from each one and, and sort of like put them together in weird ways and then create stuff out of that so that, you know, that's how I made the flying car. For example, I, I, I had an actual model kit of a of a 50s era car. And then I bought like a Gundam robot kit in addition to that. And then I used pieces from both of those things together and and made this flying car. And then, you know, just spray painted everything the same color and then, in sort of letting the props be dictated by happenstance. Uh, mm-hmm. it's sort of one of my favorite things is like, I'll have a loose idea, uh, you know, of what I want this thing to be, but ultimately what it ends up looking like is dependent upon what resources I have. And the resources a lot of times are just whatever's at the store when I'm there, you know, whatever I happen to find at the period that I'm working on the image. And so sometimes I'm really surprised by what, mm-hmm. you know, what happens. Um, and i think that is almost like one of the strengths of working in this format as opposed to say illustration is that because my intention is probably only about 75% of what actually ends up happening because there's so much chance and flexibility involved and now with a larger team you know letting them sort of take the reins like what i give my stylist like a sort of loose idea about what i want the characters to look like and then what she comes up with is invariably going to be a little different than what i'm picturing most of the time, it's better because she's she's a stylist, so clearly she's better at it than I am. And the same thing with production design. It's like you get into these conversations about with other talented people that, that this is their profession. You know, like you know, decorating sets and um, styling models and doing hair and doing makeup and doing special effects stuff. Like this is their thing, and um, I really love the collaborative element of this. So it's not just it is with the props certainly that everyone gets involved in that, but definitely the entire production is um sort of a practice and flexibility and sort of just like letting things sort of organically turn into what they turn into, if that
1: makes any sense. That's totally cool, man. makes total sense, total sense. Now I-, I wanted to go back to the company in the book, the the one you had uh, mentioned that kinda of, guess you see like reverse engineers the technology off the aliens. Is there mm-hmm. any, like, real-life companies that you thought of maybe, like, while like making the book, or in, in particular also another follow-up question, are there any episodes, like, from maybe, like, Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits that may have inspired you to create, like, a company or any of the characters surrounding that? The company
0: uh, is almost 100% inspired by a real-life company that I, I mentioned I mentioned before um, in, the, in the Kickstarter video. It was called the Gilbert Toy Company. Um, mm-hmm. And they made these really you know wild children's toys back in the 50s um that were really super dangerous you know they they were like glass blowing they would make glass blowing kits for like kids for like um you know like 15 and under kids and i don't know if you know a lot about glass blowing but i mean the temperatures at which glass melts is incredibly <laughs> dangerous like if you were to touch it like you would be very badly hurt immediately and they made they made lead casting kits they made um power plants like you would have nuclear they would give you an uh a set to make your own nuclear reaction and wow. and that's sort of why the story has grown to where it is is because just like sort of asking yourself what the culture would have to be like yeah. in order for that for people to allow that to happen um that could never happen today for example like if someone if some company tried to make a children's glass blowing kit right now it'd be shot down like 18 stages before it actually went on the shelves but mm-hmm. in the 50s you know because the you know consumer safety or at least like having outside agencies that protected consumers from their own ignorance of what it was they were buying didn't exist if you apply that to science fiction technology the chances of it, it actually pervading the culture are much higher in the fifties than it would be today. Um, because today I think if if an alien landed and someone started making these gadgets, there'd be so much red tape involved in getting anything to market and so much testing that that maybe we would be more protected than they would have been in the fifties. But in the fifties I could totally imagine it just then going straight to the shelves and, and whatever happens, happens and you know, if it's anybody's fault, it's the consumer for buying it. And that's that's sort of the stance that I created for the head of the Murray company and what the Murray company actually represents is sort of like we made this stuff and um, here you go, it's the space age, you know, enjoy it. You're living in the future right now, almost like the Jetsons. But then uh, looking at it from the other side of being like, obviously there's going to be consequences to this, and, you know, and a lot of a lot of what is driving the narrative isn't strictly, you know, sort of looking backwards. It's looking at contemporary issues and things like the iPhone, for example. Most people, I don't think, actually even remember too vividly before things like smartphones were just pervasive and everywhere and just part of life. But if you think about it, how quickly we went from not having that technology to just it being a given – was very fast and like the landscape how we interact with each other how we you know no one uses maps anymore no one uses um any like no one has a landline anymore like everyone expects you to be accessible at all times you know always you know you can check your email and you should apparently check it all the time and how quickly it changed is sort of the thing that was alarming to me when i when I sort of sit down and think about it, and that's sort of what the narrative and the story revolves around. It's like when this technology exists and it changes everything very quickly, you know obviously it's going to have some positive effects but but mores oh in the story more comically sometimes what are the drawbacks you know what I mean like what are the consequences that happen that you don't really perceive um when you introduce the products and, and that's sort of the, that was the framework around which I built the company. And also because the narrative is so connected to it, what the actual story revolves around as well.
1: Right. That's very, that's very fascinating, man. I agree with you on the advancements in technology. It's almost wild today in my, in my honest opinion of how like how far in the future with the tech, when you know, if you go back like say a hundred years, even, we didn't have any of this stuff, no computers, no cell phones, no, anything. And then like every decade and almost every five years that passes, it's almost like we just keep getting more and more like we're living literally in the future, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's just amazing in my part. Uh, and it, my, I mean, uh, and it's,
0: it's sort of hilarious too, you know, and, and one of the reasons I'm so drawn to retrofuturism is, you know, to try to imagine people in the fifties having access to technology that's more advanced than what we have right now. And how that would, how how that would, how that would sort of like trickle into the culture in a way that's different than how it would trickle in today. Um, You know, modeling these things after classic cars or cars that existed at the time. You know, watching the characters. For example, like one of my favorite one of my favorite things is like you know if if a villain was going to build a lair in the 50s based off all this technology. You know what hmm. would they be using? Like what? Would they, like what would they? What would they be modeling this stuff after? It'd probably be like you know, Irwin Allen, locked in space, sort of stuff. You know, and just imagine right. and like building these these weird space age rooms. And you know, it's really it, it. It's just really funny to sort of like ask yourself questions about the impact of technology, like you're saying, or like um, to sort of examine how how hilarious it, it is. <laughs> you know, like it. it it's it, pretty fucking. <laughs> It's like trying to watch people adapt, you know, and, and right. sometimes being unable to adapt. And that's sort of like the the moral of the story, or at least like one of the central questions that is asked throughout it is, you know, maybe there maybe things can't happen too quickly, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe a fire, fire needs to be put out, or maybe like it, it needs to be stopped at some point. And this is sort of like creating a situation where there is no limit at all on, because I, I think we, even though it's like much more rapid today than it was in the 50s, um, I think that, that, that we have a sufficient amount of like step-by-step sort of preparation before things come out. So like the iPhone makes us ready for the next thing, and then that thing makes us ready for the next thing. But this is sort of like what if there was no preparation? Like all of a sudden just anything you could imagine just exists. Like teleportation exists. You know, there was no lead up to it. You know, uh, anything, like any pyrokinesis, you know, tractor beams, like they just happen. And it's not about, and, and no one's prepared, but, all the, but everybody would want in on it. You know, if there was a wormhole telephone, I'd go out and buy it today. And I wouldn't think it's fun about the consequences because it's just there. And that's, as a as a culture, we're, I think we're used to consuming that way. It's like, we're so fascinated by the possibilities of it that we just don't think. We just why you know, everybody else is gonna buy it and then we're gonna try it out. And I think that's probably the most fun thing about this is it's not like I, I think I when I mentioned earlier, it's not about like seeing a culture that's already adapted to mm-hmm. the technology. It's about looking at a culture that's trying to adapt and probably failing.
1: <laughs> you know, like
0: failing to adapt properly. You know, and, right, totally. and being overwhelmed by it even if they don't know it. And that's what, and that's the gist of the entire narrative is, is: is what if people aren't quite as adaptable as you would think? You know, it, it, maybe maybe you meet your match in terms of being able to to go with the flow um, because there's just so much of it.
1: Right, and it's just like it's like today, like you said, like with the iPhone, we do have a little bit of preparation for the next comes out, but like in your book, it's just like boom, everything's. Futuristic, like you said, you have hover cars and teleportation and all these wild sure. gadgets. Absolutely. It's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting. It's like it's like concept. if you
0: gave it, it's like if you gave something more advanced than an iPhone to someone in mm. the, uh, the 1940s, and there was no, <laughs> and and then and then them trying to
1: <laughs>
0: on top of figuring out like what it did, but having no context for how it worked, but then also watching like what that thing would do to the culture. Like, how many businesses have we seen become obsolete, you know, in the last five years from the advancement of, of various technologies or new products? Um, right. You know, like, what would that do? <laughs> like, you know, and and, and and that's sort of the basis of good science fiction. I always come back to um, Ursula Le Guin when she, she, had, she had that um, short book uh, I'm not sure if she gave it as a speech or if she just wrote it as a as a uh, d- an open letter, but it's in- it was included in my copy of *The Left Hand of Darkness* when I first read it. And she sort of said that the the, the best science fiction um, wasn't predictive.
1: You know that a lot of
0: people's conception of what science fiction is is that it predicts the future, but in reality, good science fiction looks at the present and then looks at at possible problems or or, or not even necessarily problems, but just like sort of weird things that are developing and just exaggerates them to their logical end, you know? Mm -hmm. And in her case, she was talking about in a darkness, like, um, androgyny, like the loss of gender roles. So she took it to the extreme of what if not only were there not gender roles, there weren't genders. Like what if you had a culture of people that were completely androgynous? And she just exaggerated that idea out to its conclusion and that's sort of what I'm hoping to do with this story about sort of rapid technological change, you know. It's not really about the 50s, and it's not really about, you know, the, the specific gadgetry that's involved in the story. It's about adaptation. It's about people getting used to change. And what happens if you present them with so much change that they're, they are sufficiently overwhelmed and can't adapt to it? You know, and like, what are, what are the consequences of that? How do people react to being, you know, overwhelmed? And I, I think, I think we answered it, but <laughs> at least like answered one way that it could happen, but who knows, you know, we're still, we're still kind of early in
1: those stages. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing how like even today, like in your book, it just all comes about all at once, but today is technology is just insanely just every day there's some new gadget. Well, we have a little bit of time left, man. Uh, are there any website links you'd like to give out for people to have about uh, to find out more about your work or any sites in general? I mean, almost everything can probably be found
0: through my official website. So, um, just justinbenzel dot com would have some portals to um, my blog, where um, mm-hmm. we'll be updating people on um, you know the stage of the production, behind the scenes stuff. Um, And then, in addition to that, there's a Flickr account that links to Mm -hmm. the images that were completed before the Kickstarter. Um, And I think, you know, through those various things, they they should be pretty caught up in what's going on. But for anybody who backed the project, the book should be done by the summer. And um, at that point, we'll be looking for... At that point or before, we'll be looking for some publishers maybe to to make the book available to those that weren't aware of the campaign or, or want to pick up a copy. Um, well,
1: excellent, man. Yeah. Excellent. I look forward to seeing the book finish and everything. And Justin, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show today.
0: Thanks, Owen. Appreciate it.
1: You're most, you're most welcome, man. And, and enjoy talking with you about your book. And uh, take care, my friend, and, and we'll talk soon.
0: You as well. Take care, Owen.
1: All right. Peace, man.